Welcome to the Garden Church Podcast. Hello, Garden Church. My name is Michael, and I am so honored to be preaching today. Welcome to the last sermon in our Rule of Life series. For the last few weeks, we have focused on the topic of soul care. Our souls are the hidden parts of our lives that are made up of five components, mind, body, heart, emotions, and relationships. I want you to think of soul care as the soil that we will be placing the trellis of our rule of life into. And the reason this is important is that we cannot abide in Jesus simply by doing things for God, but we learn to be formed by the presence of God. Our mind, body, and heart are to be cultivated through intentionality. And this last portion that we're discussing today, I would argue, is the most crucial portion of soul care, the heart. But before we start, I just want to pray. Jesus, thank you so much for this time. Thank you for your gift of discipleship and how you have met us in our homes throughout this time in intimate and special ways. And so, Lord, I just ask that this morning you open our hearts to what you have to say. We ask all this in name, Jesus. Amen. So I mentioned that soul care of the heart is important. It's the most important. Well, in reality, I mean, soul care is all interconnected. You know, you are five components and none is more important than the other. But I think the heart is kind of crucial. It's the very center of your being. You can use will or spirit language interchangeably. Your will is the very center of your being. Your spirit is the very center of your being. Ultimately, it is who you are behind your social media, behind your success, behind your relationships, or behind what you wear. It is the most vulnerable part about you. It is the truest part about you. At the very center of you is your heart. And this is also the biblical understanding of the heart. It's not the organ in your chest. A, person, a person's heart is where intent, actions, and choices originate, both good and evil. And we feel this tension all the time. This is the tension of being human. Our spirits yearn for justice, beauty, and freedom. Yet at the same time, from the very same place comes murder, adultery, oppression, racism, anger, destruction, war, and selfishness. It is from the heart of man we have very propensity to create and to destroy. Behind these actions lay the truest and most intimate parts of who we are. Because of that, I believe it is the most untouched portion of our souls. This is why we tend to prop up who we want others to think we are rather than doing the work to transform who we actually are. We worry that if someone were to actually know who I am, they will think differently of me. I would be ruined. I will not be loved. So we hide our spirit from the pain of being known or rejected. In the end, we learn how to be Christians without transformed hearts, and we limit where God can actually meet us. Dear beloved, your heart matters to God. Jesus cares deeply about the pain your hearts experience. But he also is adamant about cultivating our hearts. And this is a long process that takes time, intentionality, and a lot of grace. However, it is often not convenient for us. It's never been convenient to let Jesus come into our whole beings. God's presence demands change. Holy Spirit wants to dwell in us and make our hearts his home. 
but God never overrules our hearts. He's too loving for that. And unfortunately, that leaves room for something dangerous. It leaves room for us to use God for our own agendas. Here's an example of what I'm talking about. This image I'm about to show you will likely be jarring for some of you and triggering for others. And I think it shows the potential slash consequences of our agenda when we don't allow God to change our hearts. Now, what you're seeing right now is a KKK rally that is being held in a church in front of a congregation. This rally is taking place in front of a sign, if you can see it, says, Jesus saves. This is not Photoshop, but a real photo representing a real issue. The KKK is an institution initially born out of Protestant ministers, churches, and communities that would gather on Sunday for cross burnings and lynchings. This is a group that claims to swear to uphold Christian morality, yet would commit the heinous act of targeting those who they disagree with, primarily African Americans as well as Jews, immigrants, leftists, homosexuals, Catholics, and Muslims. Those who are part of this group see no conflict with their, with their actions and their identifying as Christians. Now, my spirit is deeply disturbed when I look at this image. Yet my mind agrees with the, 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 the statement being dis displayed there. Jesus does save. Well, why is it that my discipleship, uh, my discipleship to Jesus brings me to a completely different end? That the Jesus I serve denounces racism and acts of terrorism like what we've seen around the country in Atlanta and in Colorado. That Jesus welcomes the foreigner and makes space for those far from him, not driving them away. How does this happen? Why, why does this happen? Like, there is such a big disconnect from who Jesus calls us into and sometimes how our faith is lived out. And I, I believe this happens when we make faith about believing the right things about God without allowing God to enter every aspect of our souls. And we as a church have played into this. We have bought into consumer Christianity that makes a lot of converts without asking for their hearts. And unfortunately for us, Jesus asked for disciples that are willing to have a transformed heart. The warning for us is not to dismiss what we see in this image as extreme. In fact, our minds normally do the, this. When we see something extreme or out of the ordinary, we will put it away and not allow it to impact our hearts. We will, but I want to invite us to see this as a modern-day parable and of what it looks like when we don't allow Jesus to shape our hearts. I want us to sit with this image. I want this image to be a possible mirror for personal reflection. When we allow our hearts to be unaffected by the presence and abiding with Jesus, we can easily become products of our own times. And that's what this image shows us. A group of people who rationalize a type of Christianity away from the heart of God and learn to convert others into it who then picked up the same rhetoric. Yet, brothers and sisters, I want to submit to you that we have not become any better at fighting the disciple-making machine of the world. We find our own ways to rationalize and say things like, you can't be a Christian and fill in the blank. You can't be a Christian and vote this way. You can't be a Christian and look like this. You can't be a Christian and act like this. You can't be a Christian and have tattoos. My mom, I'm so sorry. We're going to fight over this forever. But unfortunately, 
Because of heartless discipleship, we often bear fruit from the left or right and not the upside down kingdom of God. The faith of the mind, the faith of ticking mental boxes and agreeing with truth apart from your heart is a faith that is dead. It does not impress God at all. True faith in Jesus is a renovation of the heart because faith in Jesus at its core is a heart issue. It is, the, it is the heart of a person that God looks at. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 7, and here we find the end of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. Jesus is wrapping up what was a powerful vision for the kingdom of God on earth as it is in heaven. And this is a significant teaching for Jesus' ministry because it laid out a plan for what disciples that followed this rabbi were to live out. And at the end of this sermon, Jesus leaves his audience with a haunting picture. So again, turn with me to Matthew chapter 7, 21 through 23. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. And many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and in your name perform many miracles? And then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. I mean, why would Jesus close his first public sermon with this? Way to end on a downer. Yet Jesus does this strategically. After painting this vision of the kingdom, he focuses on what he is after first and foremost. Jesus does not want people to carry out a vision through effective strategies but a faithful group, of, a faithful group of people who do the will of the Father. Or in other words, Jesus wants a people who are solely after the heart of the Father. Jesus wants a people whose hearts have been transformed to mirror God into the world. For Jesus is not moved by external piety. He came to transform the hearts of those who choose to follow him. The issue we faith face as followers of Jesus is that the world is constantly deforming us. The world has always capitalized on forming our hearts more effectively than the kingdom of God. The kingdom is often slow, faithful, a vine climbing up a trellis. Yet the enemy lays out the same temptation that he offered Jesus. Say yes to me and I will give you a quick, substanceless opportunity for power. Jesus was aware of the possibility of those who say yes to his mission without being formed by God's presence. Mark Sayers calls this wanting the kingdom without the king. The church, for too often, has chosen the enemy's offers instead of the heart-changing discipleship of Jesus. The church is really good at making converts to Christianity that commit their minds to God instead of making disciples that have a transformed heart. The tension is that people will say yes to Jesus all the time, yet there is no significant change. We say yes to Jesus because we agree with him, and yet we don't allow him to come and transform us. And this is what the rule of life is about. The last three months has nothing to do with each of you forcing, uh, forcing each of you to get good at spiritual disciplines. We don't care if you get good at praying or scripture. I mean, we do. I mean, we do for sure. But we don't care if it is not without a changed heart, if it is without a changed heart. 
Because it's in fact, it is dangerous to get good at reading the Bible and praying and Sabbathing and whatever without a changed heart. It forms legalism. It forms bonds that we cannot break on our own. Our hope is that you will become people who are formed at your very center by the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The disciplines that we have discussed are just the means of grace we get to experience God in all aspects of our lives. Love of others, life with God, life with others, our work life. That's where we want to invite God to meet us. So the question is, how do we actually change? If we can't force it from our wills, if we can't change our hearts just by sure willpower or disciplines or structures, how do we actually change? We will only be able to if we heed Jesus' call for discipleship seriously. Turn with me to John chapter 15. We see here how Jesus expected discipleship to continue once he would be gone. This is the night before he is captured by Roman officials to be tried and then crucified. And Jesus, being the smart rabbi that he is, wanted to leave his disciples with a vision of how they can continue to grow from what they've experienced in his presence. For time's sake, I will not. I will just be highlighting some pieces of John chapter 15, but I would highly encourage you to read through this on your own. But I, would, I want to invite you to maybe close your eyes if you would also prefer. Imagine with me Jesus walking with his disciples. You look up and you're in a vineyard. There are rows and rows of trellises and vines around them. And Jesus says these words, I am the true vine. My father is the keeper of the vineyard. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit, and every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes to make it even more fruitful. Remain in me, and I will remain in you. Just as no branch can bear fruit by itself unless it remains in the vine, neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. I am the vine, and you are the branches. The one who remains in me, and I in him, will bear much fruit fruit. From apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not remain in me, he is like a branch that is thrown away and withers. Such branches are gathered up and thrown into the fire and burned. If you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. This is to my Father's glory that you will bear much fruit, proving yourselves to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Remain in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will remain in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and remain in his love. When the Advocate comes, who I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who goes out from the Father, he will testify about me. And you also must testify, for you have been with me from the beginning." Jesus sees abiding with him to be a whole life-altering decision. For Jesus, abiding is a Trinitarian act that we are invited to participate in. It will change our whole beings from the inside out. And so in order to change, we need to do this. First, we need to rely on the Spirit to change us. God's tangible presence is the only thing that can truly change our hearts. We see the Holy Spirit as a necessary component to the mission of Jesus. He comes and dwells with Jesus and partners with him throughout his mission on earth. It is even more vital for us then to depend on the Spirit of God, for us to know the heart of God. 
God's very spirit then guides, convicts, shapes, and moves us from the inside out to be ambassadors of God's kingdom wherever we go. Secondly, we must make a priority of abiding with Jesus. We will not see our spirits transformed from simply doing right things and believing right things about God. It will come from a renewed heart through abiding. We learn to, we, we have a renewed heart when we abide to the vine that is Jesus. Without this intentional abiding, we are at the whim of culture and not God's heart. By abiding in partnership with the Spirit, we get to know and become formed by the fullness of God. We learn what it means to be human and obedient side by side, carrying the easy yoke of Jesus. He was committed to knowing God's heart and living it out for others to follow. When we say yes to Jesus, we say yes to life to the full. And lastly, we must allow the Father's love to form us. Jesus was shaped by an intimate connection to his Father by the power of the Holy Spirit. Jesus regularly prioritized being with the Father. It was the Father's love that started and ended Jesus' earthly ministry. Jesus was the beloved that mirrored the Father's heart to us. We must seek to be shaped by that same love. We're invited to approach the heart of the Father as a beloved son or daughter. And this is discipleship being transformed by the fullness of the Trinity, being with the Father, abiding and becoming like Jesus, to then be shaped and sent out in power of the Holy Spirit to carry out the vision of the kingdom of God on earth as it is in heaven. Ultimately, the fruit of this abiding is love. We are to abide. We are to remain in the very love of God to carry out love into the world. A heart formed and shaped by God's love is a heart that can fulfill the greatest commandments to love God and love neighbor. That is the model that Jesus leaves and what we are commanded to reshape our lives around. We're commanded to love God and love our neighbors as ourselves. And so love has to be at the center. Love of God has to be at the center. The Trinitarian God, who is love, has to be at the center. And it's that same love is what we've seen all throughout the scriptures. That love is at the heart of the gospel. Track with me for a second. It is out of love that the Trinity created the world. It was love that moved God to delight in his creation. Then love moved the Father to provide comfort and shelter for Adam and Eve when they betrayed him. Love and compassion moved the Father to be faithful throughout the Old Testament despite his covenant people's obedience. God's love then moved him even closer to his people when he came to earth embodied as Jesus to dwell among us. It was love that gave Jesus patience to be with his people, to model what it looks like to be in perfect union with the Father empowered by the Spirit. It was love that drove Jesus to wash the very same feet of those who would betray and forsake him. It was love that drove God to allow himself to be mocked, beaten, and disgraced by his own creation. It was love that moved Jesus to die on the cross for the sins of the world. It was love that resurrected Jesus physically three days later. And God's not done there. It was then love that drove God to be even closer to us than Jesus was by dwelling in us as the Holy Spirit. Love moved the Spirit to grow us and partner with us, His church, for the last 2,000 years. 
Love is the force that has shaped our history. Love is God's only plan for transformation. God has full faith that love can form us. Love is how we know the kingdom of of God is alive and well. Love isn't just a nice concept for us, uh, for followers of Jesus to consider. It is a command. We are to mimic and follow the model that the living God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit has left. When we have a faith rooted in the heart, we yearn to love God and love one another. Yet cultivating a heart that is rooted in love will not be easy. It requires a few things, but primarily it requires vulnerability. I mentioned earlier that our hearts are our very center, and when we experience any pain at all, our response is to shut our hearts away from pain. We build walls, we find ways to hide behind those walls, and yet this is often the exact opposite of what God has modeled and the exact opposite of how we cultivate love. One of my favorite authors, C.S. Lewis, writes this regarding heart and love. To love at all is to be vulnerable. Love anything and your heart will be wrung and possibly broken. If you want to make sure of keeping it intact, you must give it to no one, not even an animal. Wrap it carefully around in hobbies and little luxuries. Avoid all entanglements. Lock it up safe in the casket or coffin of your selfishness. But in that casket, safe, dark, motionless, airless, it will change. It will not be broken. It will become unbreakable, impenetrable, irredeemable. To love is to be vulnerable. To love is to be vulnerable. A heart that has been shaped by God is one that is vulnerable because God modeled vulnerability in no other story, in no other God do you see him becoming vulnerable to his own creation's whim. His own, you see no other God not overtake people's free will. You see a God who is vulnerable to the decisions of those who he follows. And so this image is a warning for us. Comfortability is the death of faith. Comfortability will protect us from pain, from being stretched, from being pruned, but ultimately our hearts will become hardened, unbreakable, impenetrable, irredeemable. A heart that will produce love is one that is vulnerable. The Savior that modeled perfect love died to put love on display. So pain and vulnerability go hand in hand with love. So when we say yes to Jesus, when we say yes to discipleship, we say yes to dying to comfort and yes to putting the love of God on display. And ultimately, to keep ourselves from getting comfortable, we need to find ways to keep our hearts from hardening. Disciples of Jesus learn to adopt vulnerability as a lifestyle. It is this vulnerability that keeps our hearts tender and ready to produce love. So if you're ready, if your hearts are ready, here are some practicals on how to stay vulnerable. First, the discipline of loving yourself. 
Now, I don't want you to hear this as um, me allowing comfortability or, or condoning comfortability. This is not an invitation to narcissism. In fact, I think God spends the majority of our discipleship reminding us how loved we are. The Father kept reminding Jesus that, when he, that he was beloved during his public ministry. Whenever the Father spoke in front of others, he kept on saying, this is my beloved. How much more do we need to hear that and believe that? How much more do we need to stop loving ourselves from our own capacity and allow the love of God to shape how we see ourselves? We must believe that in our hearts, and not as a theological truth, that we are beloved. Then once we approach ourselves on a daily basis and we look, our, look at ourselves through a lens of how God see us, sees us as a son or daughter that is beloved, we can learn how to love others and love God well. So ask God to reveal how loved you are. Allow that love to reevaluate how you see yourself. You need to learn to love yourself if you will ever learn how to love others. Second, the discipline of listening. How often do we really listen to God or others? Often we spend time with those who affirm our views and opinions, and we avoid those who we disagree with. So we never really listen to others. We learn how to hear others, but we tune others out when it comes to listening to them. So I want you to take some time every day to listen to God. What does he have to say about you? What does he have to say about who you are and what he has for you? Often, his voice is far more kind and gentle than we assume. Additionally, genuinely listen to others. Don't take your loved ones for granted and assume that, they will, that you will know what they will say, which we often do. But then also pause and listen and try to understand someone you don't agree with. Because we don't. We, we don't listen to other people. We hear uh, talking points. We learn strategies of how to argue with other people, especially our spouses. So we never get the time to actually listen to others. Brothers and sisters, we need to learn how to engage people, to become people that will love others by listening to them, by creating spaces for them to feel listened to. And that's why Alpha is an amazing thing. People feel loved just by coming and feeling heard. We need to create more spaces of vulnerability and love here and now by listening. Third, the discipline of repentance. Now, we must learn to respond to the Spirit's conviction in our hearts. We need to stop making excuses for behavior that doesn't reflect the love of God, others, or ourselves. Repentance is releasing tools of pain and destruction and turning towards in the loving embrace of God. Far too often, we don't want to bring our sins to God out of shame or because we don't take our sins seriously enough, or we just don't talk about sin. But God is not surprised by our sin. He is not surprised by our shortcomings. Repentance is the act of being received by the uh, is, is, is the act of being received as a prodigal, being wrapped up in the loving forgiveness of God. Fourth, the discipline of confession. I mean, this is an archaic word, but when was the last time you confessed to a brother or sister um, about your sins? If we only repent to God in private, we can fall into the pit of living a secret life with only him. 
Disciples are saved into a body of believers that are, are there to hold us accountable. Are you hiding your sin? Hiding sin from a husband or wife? Hiding sin from your house church? Listen, I'll start. We are broken. I am broken. And we need to carry that humility that we will make mistakes. We will sin. No ifs, ands, or buts about it. I've seen no other more loving act in relationships than to confess when you are in the wrong with a spouse, friend, employee, or coworker. It doesn't mean that it's not painful. In fact, I know from experience it is extremely painful to confess. But that's not an excuse. Let people into your sin. This is an act of, those, of love for those of us who are broken. Fifth, and this may be the hardest, the discipline of forgiveness. Disciples of Jesus are, do not get the luxury of unforgiveness. If we allow bitterness and unforgiveness to dictate who is worthy of forgiveness or not, we fall into the trap of stepping into the role of arbiter. And spoiler, we are not good at that role at all. We do not get the say of who gets forgiven and who doesn't. Our hearts are not even close to getting to that place. So we need to learn how to forgive freely and quickly. Sixth, the discipline of revisiting your rule of life. Make it a rhythm, a practice of regularly revisiting and look through each of the practices in your rule of life. Look through it with the lens of how is love shaping me this season? Allow love to shape your discipleship. Jesus may have asked you to practice the prayer of examine to develop a heart for contemplation in one season, then in a new season to develop a softened heart. He may ask you into the discipline of praying for your enemies. Discipleship, like a vine, grows and reaches new heights, but we can never mature beyond the fundamentals of the faith. But in maturity, God gives us new ways of practicing these disciplines. And lastly, the discipline of emotional health. At the garden, we believe you cannot become spiritually mature without being emotionally healthy. Love is at the very heart of God. And we talked about this earlier. Your heart as your soul is important, but it's only one component. You have your body, your mind, your emotions, and your spirit. And so when Jesus tells us to love him with our heart and love others, he wants to teach us how to integrate our emotions in a healthy way with him and with others. Every action, every move, every decision needs to be saturated in the love of God. And so as we move into the next series after Easter, we will be diving into emotionally healthy spirituality. We're going to be learning how to love God deeper more authentically with our whole selves, with our emotions. And then in the fall, we're going to be starting emotionally healthy relationships so we can learn how to love others well. For God does not separate love simply to a vertical act. It is also a horizontal act. And so those are it. I know that was a lot, but that's how you cultivate a heart that is vulnerable and ripe to bear fruit of love. Start off with just one of these practices, maybe the one that scares you the most, but my prayer is that your soul will start to become a vital part of your discipleship, that your soul is where God will start meeting you intentionally, specifically, 
to create a heart that is saturated in the presence and love of God. And, and this is beautiful because if love is at the center, your prayer will be full. Your engagement with scripture will be rich. Your worship will become alive. Your community will be intimate. Your service will be easy. Your generosity will be abundant. Your stewardship will be intentional. Your vocation be impactful. Your Sabbath will be refreshing. Your mind will be like Christ and your body will be disciplined. And lastly, your heart will be soft. My prayer is that this series was a blessing to you. Take everything you learn and ask Jesus to guide you moving forward to apply it for an abundant life. I'm going to close with prayer. God, thank you for this. Thank you so much for this space. Thank you for this series and for this new season we are in as a church. And God, I pray that we become disciples. God, I pray that I learn how to become a more intentional disciple with you. And Lord, I just want to pray against any shame that anyone is feeling. And I just pray that everyone feels the loving embrace, the loving invitation of a, a deeper discipleship with you. Father, we want to be, we want to abide with you. Son, we want to learn how to walk alongside you in spirit. Be with us and shape us from the inside out. We thank you, Jesus. We thank you for your discipleship with us, and we thank you for the life that you modeled. And we ask all of this in your name, Jesus. Amen. Thank you, Garden Church. I'll see you later. Thank you for listening. For more information, please visit garden.church.